Well, what we're about to do in uh, just a few minutes uh, in our installation of our deacons, this is something that we made up on our own. We didn't just come up with these things that we're doing uh, tonight. We, uh, this process has been laid before us in chapter 24 of what we call our book of church order, but more importantly, we see much of it uh, in this text that we come to tonight in Acts chapter 6 that Grant just read. And as we look at it briefly, um, I simply want us to look at two things. I want us to see uh, serving the Word must not be hindered, and serving tables must not be overlooked. Those two things, you'll find them in the back of your bulletin. Children, you'll find your words in the normal place. Uh, Let's go to the Lord now in prayer before we continue. Father, by your Spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your Word this evening? Grant us the ability to appraise and apprehend your truth. I am, as always, weak and needy and unfit for this task to which you've called me, so I ask for your support and your strength and the filling of your spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace and do something good for you this evening. I pray that I would communicate with clarity and fluency and fervency and grace for the sake of Christ and for his church, and I pray these things in his name, amen. Well, I hope you're still there in Acts chapter 6, but I want to go back just a few pages and catch us up on what's been going on. In, in his gospel, uh, Luke described Christ. You remember, we've, we spent 22 months studying Luke, okay? Um, if you weren't with us, you missed that. But you'll remember that in that study, uh, we saw Luke and heard Luke share that Christ, uh, Christ's coming to establish His kingdom. And that kingdom, you remember the common phrase we used was uh, that he had come to establish that kingdom that was already but not yet. Uh, He had come to uh, inaugurate the kingdom. He is now uh, ruling and reigning over that kingdom, and he will one day come again to consummate that kingdom. Um, And here in in the book of Acts, which is part two of this composite work of Luke, Luke moves from the establishment of the kingdom to the expansion of the kingdom. Um, And it's an expansion of the kingdom that would go to all nations beginning in Jerusalem or from Jerusalem, and that would take place through or by the Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel. Um, And that expansion kicks off, we see that in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when um, the Spirit, who was sent by the Father and the Son as promised, comes to uh, empower the disciples uh, to be witnesses, uh, so that they would be witnesses to Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we see that power manifest itself in in Peter's first sermon, uh, in which 3,000 come to faith. 3,000 receive His words, 3,000 repent, uh, and 3,000 are baptized. And Luke says this in chapter 2. He says, those 3,000 devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, not long after that, Peter preaches again, and again we see that power made manifest, and 2,000 come to faith. And Luke says this in chapter 4, he says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, 
but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each one as they had need. And even though their preaching of the gospel led to repeated beatings and uh, repeated arrests and also to a, a beating there in the first five chapters, at the end of chapter five, Luke writes this. He says, the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. So with that background, we read verse 1 of chapter 6, and we understand things a little more fully. Luke writes, now in these days, the disciples, or when the disciples were increasing in number. And so we, we already know that that increasing in number was significant. And that increasing in number was coming at a significant price. And the increasing number and the, in the increasing, or the significant uh, increase in people and the, the word being paid were both a result of the proclamation of the Word, particularly the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Now, from the passages that I read in chapters 2 and 4, it would be possible for us to believe that the only issues that arose within the early church happened to come from outside the church from the religious establishment. But that's not the case. There was trouble within the ranks. There was trouble inside. There were underlying issues inside the church that had to be dealt with because no church is perfect. Even the early church was not perfect. For example, in chapter 5, we read of a lack of integrity, a lack of honesty, and most importantly, uh, a lack, or not a lack of, but a lot of hypocrisy and a lack of repentance on the part of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, the good news was that the apostles didn't have to carry out any kind of church discipline because God did that for them, and He dealt a blow of divine judgment on them both. The bad news was the apostles had to clean up the dead bodies. Judgment was severe and swift. But another example we have is here in chapter 6 of there being internal things that needed to be dealt with. There was an issue of grumbling and complaining and murmuring which revealed an existence of factions and jealousy and neglect and possible favoritism. And I say pos possible favoritism be because there were two groups within the church at that time. They were Hellenistic, or not, they were um, Hebraic Jews. They were born and raised and lived in Palestine. They spoke uh, Hebrew and they were, um, they were culturally Hebrew. But there was another group, a group of Grecian or Hellenistic Jews who had lived outside, who were born and raised outside of Palestine, who spoke Greek and were culturally Greek. And there was a lot of historical baggage between these two groups. And they brought this, they brought this baggage into the covenant community, into the fellowship. And it needed to be dealt with. And the presenting problem that brought it all to the surface, that brought this animosity that was present within the church to the surface was a lack of administrative skills on the, on the part of the apostles. Not completely, but they were struggling. They were in charge of dispersing the benevolence fund of the church. 
And they were to do that equally. Uh, They were to do do that without prejudice. Uh, They were to do that as there was need. And and as we read in chapter 4, they were doing a pretty good job of that. The problem was the number kept increasing so much that they couldn't keep up, and eventually they weren't doing or or they weren't fulfilling the responsibility they had. And unfortunately, there were some that were being left out. The the Grecian Jews, the Hellenistic Jews were being neglected, and they weren't receiving the food that, that was theirs, that they were expecting as the body took care of them. So we can imagine the complaints Right, the complaints were, you guys, you guys are lacking administrative skills at this point. But not only that, we have, to think, we have to think beyond that, that the complaints also could have included charges of favoritism, charges of discrimination, charges of prejudice. Because why? All of the apostles were Hebraic. And the women that were, and the widows that were being neglected were Hellenistic. And so the scenario is pretty simple In a nutshell, it looks like this. We've got underlying tension between two groups due to their history. And a situation arises in which a minority is being excluded or discriminated against and grumbling begins. And so the disciples have to step in. What are we going to do? We can't let this fester. And that leads to the first point. Their decision, their matter-of-fact decision was they were not going to allow the serving of the Word to go hindered. The serving of the word was not going to be hindered. Look at verse 2. He said, uh, Luke says, And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, that verb serve there is the word diakonein or nein. I want you to file that away. I don't do this often. I want you to file that away. Now, skip down to verse 4. They said, We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That word ministry is a noun, of course, and it's a noun form of the verb of diakonein, and it's diakonia, okay? So, all of that to say, they're serving, right? They're serving through prayer. They're serving through preaching. They're serving physical food. So, they are serving physically and spiritually, and they've come to this point where they can't do it all anymore. But with so much writing on the proclamation of the word and the proclamation of the gospel, they knew that they had to make up their minds. And they knew the teaching of the word had to be the first priority. They knew that, and, and they also knew that their success in that proclamation was dependent on that ministry being saturated with prayer. And so they had determined to persevere in both the preaching and praying. It's as if they were saying, look, we, we love doing both. We love serving spiritually. We love serving physically. We love serving the food, you know, the spiritual food of God's Word. We love serving the physical food that we're all sharing together. But we can't do both. And so we're going to choose to serve the Word. We're going to choose to serve spiritually And we're going to care for the souls of those of whom we are going to give an account. We say, well, why would they do that? Because they knew how important it was, how important important it was, how important it was currently, and how important it would be to continue to do that because they had seen with their own eyes the results of the preaching of the gospel. Lives were being changed. 
But notice this. Notice while stressing the importance of prayer and serving the Word, they never ever communicated that the serving of the tables was unimportant or less, even less important. They said serving the Word must not be hindered, and they followed that up with saying, and the serving of, of tables must not be overlooked. Look again at verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen and Philip and so on. Imagine right? They decide, we've got to do something, and so they call the entire church together, minimum of 5,000, some say as many as 20,000, and they bring them together and they say, you're going to be a part of the solution. You have the right and the responsibility as the church to choose your leaders. And they, they actually all were pleased and agreed. How do you get that many people to be unanimous? And the answer is because they understood what the, the, the apostles were saying and doing. They understood the importance of the serving of the Word and that it was a priority and that it shouldn't be hindered. And they also knew that the serving of tables shouldn't be hindered because it had always been the responsibility of the people of God to take care of those in need. Listen to Exodus chapter 22, verse 22. It says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And Deuteronomy 10, 18 says this, He executes, He being God, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner of the people of God. It was the same. Taking care of the needs of those within the body has always been the responsibility of the people of God. It was the same in the Old Testament as it was in the New Testament church as it is today, or in the early church as it is today. And what was going on in Acts 6 was an establishing of an official office that Paul later on would confirm and affirm in 1 Timothy and Titus. And it was simply to fulfill the responsibility that had always been there. And this passage describes four characteristics that we're just going to briefly touch on, four characteristics of this office. And the first is it's a spiritual office. It's a permanent spiritual office. It wasn't a, a temporary office created for man to avoid uh, or run from their responsibilities. Guy Waters says the diaconate is a permanent and apostolically appointed institution in the church of Christ. It's not only a spiritual office, but it's a spiritual office that has a spiritual task. And that spiritual task is to provide for the needs, the physical needs of those within the body. They are to serve to the benefit of the body. And in, do, in so doing, they allow the elders not to be distracted from their responsibility of teaching and, and prayer, preaching and prayer. Thirdly, it's a spiritual office that has a spiritual task that's to be filled by spiritual men. Notice that they are faithful men, faithful men of godly character and of good reputations. They exhibit and manifest fruit of the Spirit, and they're able to apply the Word of God to life. In the words of David Strain, they're men who remind us of Jesus. He goes on to say, not perfect men, 
But men who keep short accounts with God, men who long to be like Christ, men who point us to Christ, the servant of the Lord who is the great deacon of the church, served to the point of death, having come to serve and not to be served. And then finally, these spiritual men are to be spiritually set apart. They're to have hands laid upon them and they're to be prayed for. In other words, they're to be ordained. And again, the words of Guy Waters, the the laying on of hands is a gesture of recognition, a public indication that the man being ordained is called of God to this particular ministry. It is the expression of a belief that the necessary endowments of grace are present in the individual presented. Ordination is a divine appointment. It's not a human contrivance. When the ordination is done in a right spirit, therefore, we may expect that it will not be without the presence and peace of Christ owning His own institution and blessing His own ordinance. Christ is the head of the church. Christ appoints the officers of the church. And what we're doing here tonight in installing them is... As we do that, Christ will be owning this institution that He has put forward and created, and He will be blessing it as we do. He will be blessing these men. And what happened and what happens when this, when this takes place? What happens when both the gospel is proclaimed and demonstrated? What happens when the ministry of proclamation and presence are both fully, uh, fully present within the church? What happens when we serve the Word without hindrance and when we serve tables, when we don't overlook them? Look at verse 7, and the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Brothers and sisters, may what we are about to do lead to that here in Northwest Arkansas. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, bless your Word and this installation. And it's for the sake of Christ and His church, I pray. Amen.